Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Matt Rasnick. Today, we're telling the story of Bilo, a South Carolina-born grocery chain. You've probably noticed yourself that the name Bilo has been disappearing from storefronts in South Carolina and across the Southeast. Locations are either closing entirely or being rebranded. But Bilo, which started in the upstate, used to be a thriving chain. Post and Courier Greenville reporter Connor Hughes joined us to break down its rise and slow fall. My name's Connor Hughes. I'm a staff reporter with Post and Courier Greenville. We've had a lot of news about Bilo in our business pages. A lot of times it's a store closing or another one that's going to be turned into a food lion or a Lowe's food. So what made you want to look at its history, talk to its employees? What got you interested? But Bilo was, you know, born in Greenville County. The first two stores were in, in Greenville and in Easley. So that's really where it was born. But Malden was really the hub for, for Bilo for a long time. That's where their corporate headquarters were. That's where the sprawling distribution center that they, they used to supply all of their stores was based. It was really just a huge part of the town's DNA. You know, it touched just about everyone there. It has a huge legacy there. When they ended up losing it years ago, the headquarters there, it was a a huge blow for the town. And uh, there's just a a real affection for Bilo there. There's a a history that's really rooted in Malden in particular, but really throughout Greenville County and the upstate that just, it's a really important institution to them. It was a part of their history. There's a lot of sentiment there. It was an emotional experience for them to see this this institution in, in, in their past, in their town's past, in their region's past, disappearing really off the face of the earth, more or less. So that's really what got me onto the story and, and digging in a little bit more about what the legacy of Bylone was and the history and, and why it's so important to people, you know, digging a little bit past just kind of looking at the, the different stores closing the, the transitions. So you talk about how Bilo really has its roots in the upstate, but how did it become what it was? How did it start? It started in the, the early 1960s. There was a, a chain that had been in the upstate. It was a small grocery store chain called Ren and Syracuse. They had a few stores in the upstate. This guy named Frank Outlaw came in. He was a former uh, Winn-Dixie executive. And he had an idea for a store, but essentially it would be, you know, these these community grocery stores, low prices, and, and really highlight the, the meat department. He, he buys out half of Renan Syracuse. It becomes kind of informally known as, as uh, Renan Outlaw. And then shortly after he buys out the Ren half, ends up putting out the, the naming, uh, a naming contest to all the employees and comes up with Bilo. And so in 1963, it became Bilo. And that's really when, you know, everything started. He started really growing the store. He started out with two within seven years. They They had multiplied that quite substantially. And he just really built the company from there. And it just became this really a family owned business. It was privately owned by Frank Outlaw and a lot of family members kind of worked there together. And was just, you know, it was born in again, Greenville and Easley and kind of starts expanding. He sets up his headquarters in, in Malden and really gets rooted in the upstate of South Carolina. What did those early stores look like? It looks very much kind of what you, you think of as a 1960s grocery store, you know, and the big Bilo letterhead up top. And they start topping the, the stores with these huge life-size fiberglass bowls um, that since the story is run, apparently those got stolen all the time. It was like, a, yeah, <laughs> you know, kids, it's pranks in high school would, would take them. People still love the, those bowls that you can kind of see them all over the upstate. Now that I've done the story and I'm kind of looking out for them, I'll pass cattle farms and occasionally see a, you know, buy a little bowl up on like an, a huge arch the entryway and you know people they're kind of sought after people love those bowls and they became kind of synonymous with the brand of bilo again those were really used to just promote kind of idea of this huge 
premium service meat counters that they'd have in the bigger stores, you know, they'd be like 72 feet long. They'd span the whole back of the, the supermarket. That's kind of went out of fashion later and, you know, towards the 80s and 90s when self-service meat departments became a larger thing. But at the time, they had these huge, expansive, full-service meat counters. That was really kind of their claim to fame was their, their meat department. There was actually, at one point, uh, they opened up a Bilo Steakhouse. It, it was really there, you know, pushing it, uh, this idea that they were kind of the, the grocery store with these huge meat departments. If you're not 100% satisfied, we'll double your money back. If you want the best, go for the gold. Gold Star Meats, only at Bilo. Something that I heard about Frank Outlaw is that he's a person that really connected with his employees as he was bringing this company up and growing it, that he was really a hands-on manager. There was a guy named Rusty Streetman, whose dad started working there, you know, right at the beginning of the company. His dad had been there working the meat counter running Syracuse to kind of supplement his his wages as a textile mill worker. And, you know, he meets Frank Outlaw personally after Frank Outlaw gets involved with the company. And Frank Outlaw kind of brings him through the ranks, promotes him to assistant manager, uh, which really kind of changes the lives for, for this family. And Rusty Streetman himself got involved when he was just 14, you know, pretty much as soon as he can, bagging groceries. The best way to characterize it, it was just a tight-knit family atmosphere, people that worked hard, you know, but uh, we also had a good time as well. That's Rusty Streetman, a former Bilo vice president who's retired and now lives on the Isle of Palms. And many of us got our start in the business back in those early days, too, because our, our families were involved in the business. My dad was in the business, and that's one reason I kind of followed him into the business. And I know many other people the same way that started in the business because their family was already there working. And that continued for many, many years, that it just had that family feel. We would have, back in the early days, uh, our founder, Frank Outlaw, had a, had a home on Hartwell Lake in the upstate. And pretty much everybody, I think, got invited. And, uh, you know, and of course, Milo would cater it. We'd have steaks and baked potatoes and salad, that sort of thing, you know, and everybody would just be there kind of playing on the banks and in the big sprawling yard of, of, of his home for an afternoon that typically, as I recall, would be on a Sunday afternoon because that's the only time in those days that the stores were closed. Back in the early days, we were closed on Sunday. So it was very much a small town environment, very much family run business. In 1975 is when Frank Outlaw ultimately passed away and they had a little over 70 stores. They're only in two states at that point. Throughout that expansion, going from two stores to 70, they really maintained that familial, close knit, small town atmosphere throughout. And that, that's something that you just said that I found in interview after interview that it was, you know, it was a family to them. Something that was really fascinating, which is, you know, kind of a from a bygone era in a lot of ways is a lot of the people I spoke to retired as vice presidents or as, you know, district managers of huge regions or operational managers of this massive national warehouse. Almost all of them, I would say the vast majority of them started as bag boys when they were 16 and just worked their way up. And that was definitely something that was was built into the company, that they were they wanted to reward loyalty. They wanted people who knew grocery stores inside and out, who would come up through the ranks. It really came through in, in the way that the company operated for a long time. When did the chain really start to pick up steam and start to grow more? Kind of the, the quote unquote heyday of, of Bilo. As I mentioned, Frank Outlaw passed away in 1975, and 
under his leadership, the, the chain did grow a lot. I mean, it went from two stores to 70 in, in two different states. But after he passed away, Bilo was bought by a Dutch conglomerate. Ahold NV, which later became known as Royal Ahold. We were their first U.S. acquisitions. And they they put a lot of capital into our, into our company at that time. They started seeing the opportunity for us to grow even more than we were. We started opening stores to the tune of maybe 25 or 30 per year, in addition to remodeling existing stores. And, uh, and that was a period of rapid growth. Now Bilo has the backing of a, a multinational conglomerate behind it. So they go from two states to four. By the time they really reached their peak, they had more than 300 stores, roughly 26,000 employees, and they were pulling in you know, about $3 billion a year. And people really point to that as, as when Bilo hit its stride and was, it was really at its peak. Why do you suppose it is that more than one million people a week shop at Bilo? Clean, fresh, friendly, and more for your money. Buy low, buy low. Even though they were owned by this huge, massive international company, the, the management kind of on the ground floor, I guess, if you will, buy low, the people who were directly involved in managing it, were given relative autonomy because they were so successful. Essentially, Ahold saw that they were doing what they needed to do, and they, you know, there was obviously a lot of communication there, but they gave them a lot of independence in terms of running this business. So a lot of the things that people had loved about the company, this familial feel, this close-knit community around it, the fact that it was this kind of small town country market with a, you know, a lot of the traditional things that you, you would think of that in terms of the look and the way it's operated, a lot of that endured and stayed a part of, of the company. It remained under Ahold's leadership pretty firmly rooted in the upstate. Every year they did a massive one-day golf tournament for charity and just filtered millions and millions of dollars to local nonprofits in Malden. Again, the, the headquarters for, for Bilo remained in Malden. It was still a massive amount of people being employed, and they were, you know, just really kind of broadening their footprint here. Uh, there was There's a huge, uh, you know, 15,000-seat event venue right in the middle of downtown Greenville. They essentially sponsored the construction of that. It was called the Bilo Center, so, you know, a lot of visibility there. You know, it's been a long time since that's, that was called the Bilo Center. Now it's called the Bon Secours Wellness Arena. But a lot of the people who live in this area, you know, it's still the Bilo Center. That's still how people refer to it, the, the, you know, the longtime residents of Greenville. So it was a very much just a visible, huge part of, of the upstate community, not just the economy, but, you know, the culture of, of upstate South Carolina. Puzzled about all the claims for low grocery prices? It's easy to find the solution. Bilo the first place for low prices. But you've known that all along. So that heyday period, of course, didn't last. At what point did things start to change for the chain? This was at a time when, as it is today, the grocery business is, was incredibly competitive. A lot of new companies were emerging. A lot of the smaller and mid-sized companies were kind of jostling for, for you know, market share, for position. Walmart was just tightening its grip on the entire industry. They were aggressive about growing, Ahold was. They uh, really wanted to make sure that they kept a significant, a significant a, a portion of the market share as they could. And they were buying up companies. They bought up 50 companies. They took on billions of dollars in debt very quickly and were just really pushing this growth. And part of that expansion strategy was buying a, a Maryland-based 
company called U.S. Food Services, which was a huge, it still exists under a different name, but it was a huge company at the time. And that ended up being a huge problem because shortly after that, it was discovered that there was a massive amount of financial fraud going on at U.S. Food Services. The SEC at the time accused them of overstating their net sales by $30 billion. They ended up ultimately selling by low. That ended up being the period of time that we all looked at and said, oh boy, this is uh, this is not good because we'd always been in, in a growth mode. When we had that financial scandal that wasn't directly tied to Bilo, it was tied to one of our parent company acquisitions in food service, then that sort of, in my mind, began to decline. And we also, at that point too, soon after that, Aho decided to sell us. They ended up ultimately selling Bilo to a company that was based out of Texas called Lone Star Funds, which was you know, an investment company. Shortly thereafter, Bilo LLC, which is the company they kind of you know, put them underneath to, to manage it, and they folded some other grocery stores into that, but they sell off or close 116 locations. Some of those were other grocery stores, like a, there was an Alabama-based company called Bruno's that was folded into that. There were a few others, or roughly half of those were Bilo locations. And so they start, you know, shedding stores, closing them, selling them off, but they frame it as part of this refocusing that they're going to be doing with Bilo, essentially trying to make it leaner, more profitable. Bilo had a pretty dominant share of the of South Carolina. They were number one in terms of market share in the upstate and Lone Star Fund says that's what we're going to focus on. So they don't close a single store in South Carolina and said that we're going to invest heavily in South Carolina. So shortly after that, True to their word, they say that they're investing $75 million in the upstate alone. They start opening these bilo super centers or super bilos. They're renovating and expanding other stores. So it looks like that's that's really what they're trying to do. Just to kind of recap there, so it sounds like, you know, we know that bilo started here in South Carolina, started in the upstate, had this period of early growth, right, where they're in South Carolina and North Carolina, then this explosion of growth really in the southeast, and then now they've contracted, and it sounds like they're focusing on, you know, we started in South Carolina, we're committed to South Carolina. Exactly, and it's interesting because it, it shows kind of the pitfalls that can come from being bought out by this international conglomerate, they grew much more than they did under private ownership, and it was really beneficial for them. But the downside of that is that now somehow financial fraud that's going on in Maryland affecting a company in the Netherlands is now having a direct impact on what's going on with Bilo in South Carolina. They continue to be deeply rooted in in the upstate in, in South Carolina, but now there's all these international huge forces that are really influencing the trajectory and the fate and the destiny of this, you know, this what's ultimately an upstate South Carolina business, it's now being influenced again by these these larger forces. So we're at this point where they have that strategy of focusing on South Carolina. How did that work out? At first, it seems like it's it's going fairly well. They're, they seem to be true to their word again, that they're really making these significant investments in the company and in, in South Carolina and the upstate. But shortly after, some cracks start to show. So what appears to happen is they they come in, they make these investments, they try to make it a leaner company, and very quickly after that, they say they're selling. Uh, so in, in 2007, they announced that they're planning to sell the entire company. They're looking for a buyer. And people aren't sure exactly what to make of that, but they are, are basically telling us, you know, we came in, we streamlined the company, we refocused it where it needed to be refocused, and it's, you know, it should be a pretty attractive sale. But just a few months after that, they completely abandoned 
that idea. They walk away from it. They say there's too much market volatility and, uh, and they essentially abandon this idea. So it's a very quick turnaround. They come in, they make this huge investment. They say they're selling, then they say they're not selling. So, you know, there's a little bit of whiplash there for me, at least, as I was going through these archives, seeing all of this play out and talking to people about how, kind of how this happened after they bought the company. It's, it's kind of this very quick transition. Then as things progress, they end up just a couple years later declaring bankruptcy. So they're trying to steady themselves. They're having some leadership change and that's shown some signs of internal turmoil as things are going on. But as they come out of bankruptcy, they try to continue to project some optimism. But in 2013, things start to change a lot. They, they end up merging with Winn-Dixie and some of that, their rootedness in the upstate really starts to dissolve in a lot of ways. They announce that they're going to be moving their headquarters that, you know, was such a part of the fabric of Malden. They're going to be moving that to Jacksonville, Florida. Then they end up selling this huge distribution center to CNS wholesalers and outsource their distribution there. So their footprint in the upstate, it's really eroding. Not only that, they, they end up announcing that they're not going to be renewing their, their naming rights for the Bilo Center. So that's when that becomes the Bon Secours Wellness Center. So it's not just that they're kind of pulling their investment a little bit out of the upstate, but also just kind of the footprint that they have in the identity of the upstate. It's really starting to dissolve. As that's going on, Lone Star Funds sets up Southeastern Grocers to, to essentially run Bilo and, and these other grocery stores that are kind of under that umbrella. So that's when really Bilo's identity in the upstate really starts to erode. You know, there's still a lot of people there who identify with Bilo. And again, they, they outsource CNS to out, uh, CNS wholesalers. So the distribution's still in Malden, but it's, it's not as much tied to the Bilo brand. And as all of this has gone on, really, they just continue to, to invest less and less in each individual store. They start laying people off. I spoke to one woman who started working there in 1998 uh, her name's Heather Allen. She describes what it was like in 2017. She was a manager for a store at that point, being called to a, a manager's meeting at a, essentially a conference center. They get there before she can even walk in the door. She has to sign a non-disclosure agreement. She walks in, they hand her a list of names and say, these are all of the people that you're laying off. You know, that was a, a big deal. You know, she's worked for the company for 19 years at that point, 19 or 20 years. She knew a lot of these people very well. And that was on a Monday, and she said she wasn't allowed to talk to anybody about it until Thursday. She left Bilo after that just because the things that had been there that made her love the company so much were gone. So Marsh Collins, who had run the company for a long time as CEO, and kind of people talked about him as the person who kind of reigned in the heyday of, of the company. When I talked to him, he said essentially the sale of Bilo to Lone Star Funds just began this, this slow death of the company. So it, it kind of became a foregone conclusion that this would be the end of Bilo. And people people see it in the product when they're walking the aisles, they can see kind of the, the effects that this lack of investment is having on the company. Ultimately, in the middle of last year, they announced that they're going to be discontinuing this brand. Bilos are going away forever. Almost all of it is being sold to competitors. Some of it's, you know, there's those that aren't being sold. They're not sure exactly what's going to happen. Probably just be closed. People are, are sad about it, but they're, they had been expecting it for a long time. Almost everyone I talked to described it as like losing a, a member of their family when they finally heard that it was happening. Really sad, even after retirement here, when I look at it and I see that, that brand, which was a market leader for so many years, to see it disappear and go away completely, you know, is just, uh, 
is a traumatic moment for us, you know, in terms of the, you know, in terms of all of us who love the company and loved everybody we worked with and loved our customers over the years. There's a Facebook group started called Bilo Alumni that I reference in the story that was started actually by, by Heather Allen. And she started it, you know, just because when she saw that even though she was gone from the company, she still knew a lot of the people there. She started it thinking it would just be you know, her and a few of her friends and maybe they could use it to kind of get together, maybe a small reunion. And as soon as she starts it, just the, she gets, starts getting flooded with requests to join more than she can even get to just by herself. It's like within two hours of her starting it, it's just flooding in. And it's, you know, people who just want to talk with each other, connect with each other. There's people posting in there about how they've been with the company 40, 50 years. Recently, there were two women who, you know, said that they started, they both started working with the company in 1976 and when they were teenagers and it was their first job. And they've been with, they've both been with the company ever since. And they were hired on by Food Lion, which again is, is replacing a lot of these bylaws across the state. We're talking about how grateful they were that they were going to be able to stick together. There's a lot of photos of people celebrating graduations, you know, in the produce aisle of people, you know, giving each other anniversary cakes, you know, at, at where the registers are, you know, people celebrating these life events, these milestones in their lives in the store. And it really shows that, you know, this, this store became a fabric of their lives. The people that they worked with were the communities that they built their lives around. They were lifelong friends and people that they cared about. And it was all around, you know, the Bilo brand, but it was these relationships that forged inside the stores. I think that's the thing about this that kind of sticks out to me right now is how much a lot of these people really loved their their jobs and took a lot of pride in their work. And I feel like that's a job that we don't always hear a lot about uh, working at a grocery store, but these are people that we see once a week, twice a week, more than that, because a lot of people regularly shop at the same store. And also kind of an interesting time to be thinking about this because grocery store workers are some of the people in the last year during the pandemic that have had to keep going to work every day and put themselves at at risk. I don't know, what what was that like just hearing from people about their work experiences? It sounds like a lot of these people were really passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, they loved their jobs. That's something that really came through in reporting the story is that a lot of people's identities are tied to the company. And, you know, it's not even, you know, there's some people who kind of just come in and work a year and leave, but, and, and, you know, there's a lot of people who work there for decades, but in going through Bilo alumni, there are even some people who say, you know, I worked there for four years, I worked there for five years, and are still kind of mourning the loss of, of this store. They still feel such a connection to it. And of course, there's the people that work there for 40 or 50 years. And, and talking to people, as I was reporting the story, you know, telling friends and family about the story that I'm working on, that's something that people were surprised about, just, you know, the interest that's in this bilo group, the amount of activity, the amount of people want to connect with each other. And, you know, we that's not something that necessarily people who are outside of this business see all of the time or understand. A lot of it happens behind the scenes. But there is, it's a very, again, a very unique work environment. There's, I, I think, a feeling of satisfaction. I mean, you're, when you work in that community, in that, in that group, you're literally feeding your community. You're feeding your neighbors and your you know, your friends, your family, you're the ones, you know, that's a, it's an essential service. You're providing them the food that they put on their table. And people take a lot of pride in that. And especially in a setting where it's a, a company like Bilo that was born in this small town, in this small town way where it was, everybody knew each other. 
grows up in, in, you know, in upstate South Carolina. And it's, it's something that Malden, it's a quick growing town and it was a, a textile mill, but they, you know, having a business like Bilo there as a, as a small town was a real sense of pride for them. And it was something that they really identified with. And again, was, was a part of not just Malden's identity, but Greenville County and the upstate. So I think those two coming together really makes Bilo a, a company that the people are, are, are sentimental about and emotional about and have a real connection to. fortunate enough to have one of the Bilo bullheads that I received back in the, I guess, the mid-80s. My dad had retired from Bilo, and he was a district manager in Columbia, South Carolina, and they actually presented him with that bullhead when he retired, and he, and he passed it along to me, and my dad was with the company for about 30 years before he retired, and then later on, you know, as I was progressing, I was a district manager at the same time. He was a district manager, but he, when he retired, he said, why don't you just go ahead and take this? And I took it, and I, I, I hung it in my district office at the time. And as I went to different offices and different positions over the years, the bullhead followed me. You know, it, it would be <laughs> hanging in wherever my office was, whether that was in Malden, South Carolina, whether it was in Charleston, whether it was in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, it just followed me everywhere, you know, because I would just move it from place to place. Now uh, I have it here at home with me. But I guess that's kind of my centerpiece, you know, basically. Uh, but I've also, over the years, I've, I've got a, a pretty significant collection of of our early house magazines, I guess you'd say, the Bilo Bulletins that the Frank Outlaw started back in 1961. And then I've got things, too, like all of the all of the name badges that I had over the years. I've got a collection of those. It's quite a bit of stuff. Every time I turn around, it seems like I run into something that's got Bilo emblazoned on it. Try not to hoard everything, but but I do like to I do like to hold on to the stuff that's important to me. And Bilo being such an important part of my life and my family's life, you know, I like to hold on to that just to reminisce. I live in the east of the Cooper area in Charleston, and, you know, I haven't had a Bilo just near me for years now. And I love Bilo. Even after I retired, I continued to shop at Bilo, my wife and I. And I mean, gosh, we we still miss our Bilo. And we had three within a couple of miles of us, and now we have none. The closest Bilo that I had up until recently was probably 12 miles away, you know, too far to go shop basically because because of the traffic in Charleston and of course now all those are they're gone or going you know because they've been sold to uh, either Food Lion or Lowe's Foods so it's sad to see the brand go away we still have the fond memories Marsh Collins coming back to him the former CEO he doesn't shop there at all and he hasn't for a long time and it's it's an emotional thing for him. You know, he talks about it like separating from a loved one. You know, it was a, not an easy decision for him to not shop there anymore. Then there was uh, a guy named uh, Jack Simmons who ran their distribution center. He was the operating manager there. And he took that job over when his, his dad retired. Uh, so that was kind of a family business for him. And he worked in that, that distribution center with his brother, who was also a manager there. So it was a family business for him. He talks about it very affectionately. And he never stopped shopping at Bilo. Really, he said, you know, his, his wife did pretty much all the shopping for their family. And I talked to her and she talked about, you know, now she's got to find a new grocery store after decades and decades. There's a lot of emotion 
around it about you know where people shop and whether they are still Bilo customers and what their reasoning is for that. There's a lot of loyalty, but there's you know people are are hurt by what they've seen happen with Bilo and, and the divestment that they've seen and the kind of loss of some of that identity that that they helped build and cultivate while they were there. All right, listeners, that's all for today. If you missed it, check out our bonus episode from Monday about the second installment of our Uncovered series about corruption and questionable spending in South Carolina's small towns. We'll also be in your feeds again this Monday with a special episode, so be sure to subscribe on your Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Do you have any questions about today's show or ideas for what we should cover in a future episode? Write to us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.